Hi, welcome to the show. On this episode, Matthew Mitchell, a senior research fellow and director of the Equal Liberty Initiative at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, chats with Dr. Bruce Yandel about his latest economic situation report for March 2022, including inflation, trade, the FTC, and much more. If you would like to connect with a scholar featured on this episode, please email the Mercatus Outreach team at mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Bruce, it's great to visit with you again today. How are you doing? Doing fine, Matt, but boy, we do live in interesting times, don't we? Yeah, it seems as though every time we talk, we think we're out of a crisis, and we sort of appear to be out of one crisis, but we're, we've got two new ones that have cropped up, inflation and World War III. Hopefully it's not World War III. Hopefully it's just a regional conflict, but it's certainly going to have an economic effect on us. What's your take on things? Well, what is going on is, just as you mentioned, is truly profound. I guess before it happened, I couldn't imagine COVID being pushed off of the front page of the newspapers or the daily news at night. But lo and behold, you're right. Inflation was beginning to shove it a little bit. But then comes Russia and Ukraine, a truly tragic uh, situation. And now we put all that in the pot and stir it. And it turns out to be a pretty interesting and troublesome brew as we try to say, okay, what does that mean about economic prospects, pushing aside what might be moral and other concerns that are perhaps far more profound? But uh, what can we say? The, uh, you and I have talked about uh, being cautious when talking about price increases to try to differentiate between a change in a relative price, gasoline at the pump, which we are all seeing uh, at levels we have probably not seen in our lifetime, and all of the other prices that were also rising, the general price level rising, now being affected by a sudden large increase in the price of energy, one major commodity. And so for us as ordinary consumers, it really doesn't matter what it is that may be causing it. We end up having to figure out how we're going to live within a fixed income budget for most ordinary folks in these difficult times. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. You know, that that seems to be, I'm, sh- I'm sure you've had this experience as an economist. When talking to friends, you make the distinction between relative and general price changes. And sometimes uh, friends kind of look at you like, who cares? <laughs> it, yeah. it, you know, it, I, it, it's still painful to me. What is the case for why it matters whether what we're experiencing now is a result of general price increases, that is inflation, or relative price increases, or some combination of the two? Why, why does it matter? The big question and the reason I think it matters an awful lot has to do with policy decisions that would be made to deal with the situation. We look to the Fed, we look to the printers of money when we are trying to identify general inflationary forces that cause all prices to rise together. In a simplistic, but I would say powerfully helpful way, we can say, when we print more money and throw it out there in the marketplace with only so much in the way of goods and services available in the short run, we can forecast with great accuracy that all prices taken together will rise. And so if we want to do something about that problem, then that says, let's look to the monetary authorities and say, please change your behavior. 
please begin to restrict the growth of money in the economy, and we will see this inflation subside. But if we have a monopolist show up and uh, raise the price of one product, or if we have a war develop and a major supplier is now a part of that conflict, we don't look to the monetary authorities and say, please take some offsetting action. And I guess the danger, uh, Matt, is that there would be a tendency for us to look to the monetary authorities and say, your job just got tougher. How about taking care of this problem while you are also working on the general price level? We try to find remedies. It matters a lot. And I, and I suppose where it gets particularly difficult is I, I think gasoline is probably the uh, where a lot of the disentanglement becomes d- difficult because it is such a large portion of people's consumption bundles. And so from their perspective, this is what, you know, when they see prices go up, this is something that they certainly focus on. Often, you know, when we talk about core inflation, we actually exclude gasoline from that uh, because it is volatile and it's just one good and it's one good that is such a, a large fraction of the budget that, you know, we worry that relative changes in the price of gasoline, if we included that in our measure of inflation, that it, it could, you know, give us a wrong impression about what's going on with inflation. But if I could sort of paraphrase a little bit of what you're saying, this is not to say that we should, you know, welcome a relative price increase in gasoline. But if it does happen, our, our policy response is very different, and it, and we may not necessarily want to you know change that. That's right, and you know something else, Matt, that I think matters in this political world in which we all operate, and we can be thankful that we are operating in a political world with a constitution and some accountability. But when we get something horrible like Ukraine, Russia, and this sudden run up in the price of petroleum and the price of gasoline. Now the politicians have someone to blame for higher prices. And in a way, it takes the pressure off the politicians who had taken actions previously that caused inflation to get started in the first place. And so we, we need to hold the feet to the fire with respect to accountability for inflation, fundamental inflation. And buddy, we got a big number this morning, didn't we? You know, that CPI now is popping up on an annual basis at a level that takes us back to 1982 to find a counterpart. And so help our listeners understand this and disentangle it a little bit. When we say inflation really does begin and end with government policy, what are the significant drivers of inflation? You know, I'll hear friends say, put it all at the doorstep of, of current president, President Joe Biden. But really, a lot of this is decisions that were made over the course of the last several years. Is that right? That's the way I see the data, Matt. We begin to get major macro policy, stimulus policy in the Trump administration. That is where, in a sense, uh, we use the expression helicopter money. But in a sense, helicopters were sent across the country and we dropped out bundles of money that fell into bank accounts. No, it got sent by the Treasury and the to us. We flooded the economy with lots of money, trillions of dollars got dumped out. And then as time passed, we got a second dump during the Trump years. And then we got a third and large dump when President Biden came into office. 
He made political promises the way all people running for office do. If you elect me, I'm going to send you some money that's going to help. And sure enough, he did. But when we look at the growth in demand deposits, just as a proxy to say, well, let's see if we can find this money. When we look at the growth in demand deposits, we just see a mountain that develops with three peaks as it gets higher and higher. And those peaks are associated with the macro policy. Now, now we ordinary human beings say, well, hallelujah, I got money in the bank. Uh, Let's rush out and spend it. But there was a problem. Most of the economy was shut down in that first phase or two. And we couldn't travel. There was no air travel allowed. And so, well, we'll get in the family car and hit the road. The number of miles driven per capita started going through the ceiling. That put pressure on gasoline supplies and petroleum, and we saw a nudging up an early one long before this war broke out. We started buying, well, let's fix up the kitchen. Let's get a new washing machine. I can't go anywhere. Let's put a new deck on the back of the house. So there was a huge increase in long-lived assets as opposed to just general consumption, partly because we just couldn't get out and consume. When you look at the data, it's really amazing. There was a 300% increase in the production of automobiles and parts in a brief period there. And we ran out of, guess what? Semiconductors. And so now all of a sudden we got a semiconductor problem. There was a 100% increase in the shipment of exports from China to the United States. And so now all of a sudden the ports are all clogged up. So much of it goes back to that surge in demand, which then led to the price increases that you and I have just been chatting about. But that surge is behind us now, I think. So we're in another world. Absolutely. Well, there's an interesting way that this then circles back and affects public policy in, in a couple of other ways. So one is the response to inflation by policymakers sometimes includes wage and price controls or new regulations. The other one is that sort of involuntarily, policymakers have to deal with the fact that inflation affects their borrowing costs when the government goes out on the market and tries to borrow. So can you walk us through a little bit of that? Yeah, I think your last point is the one that we probably should be, in a way, most concerned about. It might be one that would say that's really going to be our salvation in in facing the realities and the difficulties of the problem that we human beings have created for ourselves with inflation. That at some point, It's really going to begin to bind politicians' behavior into carrying forward and delivering on promises that they need to make and have made to the American people for Social Security, for health care, for transportation, new highways, the list goes on. But all Mm -hmm. of that involves debt. And now the interest cost of the debt is already ticking up, and we'll be seeing some big numbers before long. Interest rates are headed north. The Fed has promised we're going to keep raising rates, and I'm sure they will be delivering. So that cost of debt is going to be biting away. But you touched on something else that I guess I I find, to me, far more troublesome 
than the interest cost on the debt. And that is the tendency for us to think of the economy the way we think of our smartphones. Well, let me just push this button over here or put my finger here. Let's control this economy and make it perform in a better way. There's a tendency to see a resurgence of command and control. In the current picture, the administration says, well, we are going to get the Federal Trade Commission to begin to investigate the petroleum companies. Uh, We don't want to see those oil companies taking advantage of American consumers in this difficult time. On and on, the list begins to grow. So command and control comes along. And you know, it's sort of interesting, the two senators, the two Democrat senators who supported putting sanctions on Russian oil. One was from Alaska, one of our major oil producing states. The other one was from West Virginia, another one of our major energy producing states. I would never suggest that they were motivated by the fact that they come from energy producing regions. But I have to think that maybe down in the subconscious mind, There was a little bit of a nudge that says, and this might not be so bad for our state and our constituents. That's right. Yes, that's that's absolutely right. Well, and then there's this connection, too, between when we start talking about wage and price controls, between the government initiating or failing to initiate policy and the reaction by the private sector. And this is a, a concept known as rent extraction. So could you walk us a little bit through this? I think this is, uh, in some ways, one of the more interesting and least appreciated or talked about extensions of rent-seeking behavior. So where does this idea come from? Uh, We might just go back a minute or two ago when we were talking about the Federal Trade Commission being ordered by the White House uh, to open up an investigation, to do a report, to begin to study the behavior of petroleum companies, to be specific, And uh, that's to look out for price gouging, not just for petroleum, but other things as well. There's also an investigation of meat producers. And so once these investigations get started, obviously, uh, the industry, the people who are affected and who are being investigated become very active, if they have not already been, very active politically, because they are people with good sense and they have assets and they say, gosh, my assets have been put at risk again, with a threat of regulation that might be very costly. If they're going to regulate, I'll try to find the lowest cost way for those regulators to accomplish their end. Otherwise, they will be extracting wealth from me. And uh, we economists, I would say, unfortunately, came up with a a word many, many years ago. Instead of you saying wealth, we say rent. But think wealth. As we think about this story, And so a threat to regulate inspires an effort to avoid the cost of regulation, to minimize what might be taken, uh, to prevent the politician from extracting wealth. And so the halls get really busy with lobbyists and executives, people from industry saying, I would like to confer with you about what you are doing. Now, it's also possible, and is often the case, as studies have shown us, that depending on how regulation is designed, it is possible that there are significant differential effects across an industry. If there's going to be a regulation that requires a specific way to price or to operate, 
if there is a firm that is able to persuade the regulator to adopt their way of doing business, then it imposes no cost on them. And that can then be forced on their competitors. And so now that raises rivals' costs. The winner has avoided rent extraction, and the losers are going to be bearing part of the brunt. So then the process becomes all the more complex and inspired. We get a bigger lobbying sector in the economy, and it tends to become permanent because now we have the regulators and the regulated interacting in a kind of market, a political marketplace, where in a sense favors are bought and sold, and I don't mean that literally, Favors are bought and sold on the basis of influence and, and, and human interaction. So one way to think about it is that it's maybe contrast it with the typical or original rent-seeking story that Gordon Tullock told, which is, okay, you've got rent, wealth. You've got the possibility of the government creating a policy that confers a wealth transfer on one firm or industry or person. And so the government is handing out this privilege and people come to the government seeking the privilege and they expend scarce resources in seeking that privilege. Maybe they lobby, maybe they change their product mix or their behavior in a way that's not efficient in order to seek those those favors and the government hands out the favor. But in that case, in some ways, you might think of the story starting with the business. The entrepreneur is coming to the government and seeking some sort of privilege. They're the entrepreneur. In the Fred McChesney story, the entrepreneur can be the politician who comes up with a new and different way not to grant wealth, but to extract wealth, and essentially goes to the business and says, it's a nice business you got there. It's a shame. It would be a shame if something would happen to it. But, you know, you could perhaps, you know, persuade me not to (laughs) have anything bad happen to it. And then the business will come to the government. They will lobby. Again, the same kind of behavior. They could lobby. They could change their business model in some way that's less efficient. A good example of this could be, you know, they could they could relocate in a district where a powerful politician, you know, represents, or they could change their production techniques so that they rely more on labor than on capital because labor votes and capital doesn't. Uh, you know, they could do different things in order to, to please the politician And then where the money for nothing part comes out, the reason why he uses that phrase for nothing is that at the end of the day, it's quite possible the politician that nothing changes. The policy never actually comes comes down the path. It was just the threat of this painful wealth extraction that managed to get the inefficient behavior. And and so you're left with the inefficient behavior, no change in policy, and you're kind of stuck. Is that is that a fair way to way to characterize it? It is. And, you know, the uh, I think it's really neat the the way you described the the role. Who is the entrepreneur in the in the in the story we're telling? And that entrepreneur character changes from the industry to the politician. But, you know, I was thinking as you were as you were describing that about the first major thing that happened with respect to controlling emissions from automobiles was a mandate that all automobiles, new automobiles sold in the United States be equipped with a catalytic converter. It was a wonderful device that is technically a marvelous invention, and it was General Motors. They had patented it. And so if General Motors was able to get the catalytic converter required of all of its competitors, 
GM would get the royalties on the catalytic converter and everybody else would bear up under the cost. At the time that regulation was being debated, Honda had an automobile that already met the tailpipe requirements without anything. They had a clean burn engine. Chrysler, that was having other kinds of difficulties, said, give us six more months. We're on to another technique to get emissions down. Well, finally, the axe fell. And so Honda, with their clean burn engine, had to put on a catalytic converter. General Motors had to use catalytic converters, but in a sense, they were selling them to everybody else. And so a lot of resources changed hands in the political process. Then I think another story has to do with the regulation of funeral homes. That is, quite often, the politician will see a sensitive area where they think attention is deserved, and it's an industry that has never even had a national trade association. They've never lobbied the federal government before because they were regulated at the state or local level. And when we first got the funeral home rule from the Federal Trade Commission, it was the first time that that industry, in a sense, came to Washington. And they were attempting to pay for nothing. In other words, don't make this rule so onerous that we don't require every one of us, for example, to have the ability to burn the remains of of a person who has passed. Let's let the market take care of that instead of requiring everybody to have the crematorium. Uh, These were things that were being considered. But in any case, it does inspire trade association development. And now going back to your point about Tulloch, instead of getting a lot of gain out of it from the industry standpoint, at the end of the story, they have spent most of their expected gains trying to get the prize they wanted or to keep from getting a burden that they did not want. So the world just becomes a a little more costlier place. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, it reminds me just going back last year, I think was the 50th anniversary of George Siegler's seminal piece on uh, the economics of regulation. Uh, you know, in that piece, he essentially makes the, the case that all of the instruments of regulation, a limit on entry, a limit on quantity, a price floor, mandates on business practices or technology, all of those instruments can, of course, be used as the public interest theory of regulation suggests to make markets more efficient by addressing market failures or imperfections. But every single single one of those may also be used by an organized special interest, either a in the market or if you think of politicians themselves as organized special interests, to push a market in a less efficient uh, direction by limiting competition, by raising rivals' costs, by creating a price floor that pushes marginal costs away from uh, marginal benefits. It it just complicates the story. It it makes our task as uh, citizens and as economists more difficult to evaluate policy because not only do we have to think through what could happen in an imperfect market, but what could happen in an imperfect political market 
where policymakers themselves are not always driven by the you know most pure intentions. Even if they are driven by pure intentions, they lack information and the, and and they lack incentives sometimes to serve the general interest and are sometimes encouraged to serve a special interest. Right, and and of course they are they the politician wants to keep her job. They are responding to demands from the people they serve. That's our system. They've got to get the votes. They've got to satisfy a majority to continue a career in public service. And so the whole process is, in a way, market-driven. Sometimes the currency is votes or contributions, political contributions, but there's some currency involved. There's some buying and selling, put that in quotation marks, that is taking place. And so in a way, human life shifts from the marketplace for goods and services where we pay with money that we earn to the political arena. And sometimes we people decide it's cheaper for us to get it politically than to go out in this other market and buy it. I think I can be more successful in getting a desired outcome. And the neat thing about it is that it has with it the force of law, which makes it a little more permanent. You know, the, this instance of wage price controls, an early one in our modern history, 1971, Richard Nixon imposed wage price controls because of runaway inflation. It was running at about 3%. Put tariffs on imports coming to the United States. Close the gold window. We will no longer redeem dollars with gold. And so President Nixon responds, we get wage price controls. They continue in one way or another until Ronald Reagan comes into office. That's a long time later. We are in a, we are in a period right now, I think, Matt, where there's a high probability that we will get some kind of wage price controls because of gasoline at the pump and energy prices. And they do tend to stick around a long time. Oh, that's, that's, uh, you know, it's fascinating from the history of, of economic thought, because as a science, you have competing theories. Uh, sometimes you have perfect, you know, two perfectly valid theories that sometimes uh, offer differing predictions. And so it's, you, you kind of have to wait and see which theory seems to dominate. And sometimes one theory will dominate in one era and another will dominate in another era. But it, you know, when I was in graduate school, one of the things that we were taught was that wage and price controls, that's an area where there's near consensus among economists that it's almost never an effective way to help the economy, to help people. Usually, you know, they result in shortages that will be more destructive than whatever is the underlying concern. And now, you know, here we are essentially talking about it again. It occurs to me also that the seven, the comparison of the seventies is not all that, you know, uh, dissimilar to today again, because there was also a, a big factor driving some of the concern there was international politics as uh, there was a, the oil embargo in, in protest to the West supporting Israel. And, uh, you know, that you at the same time, we're trying to differ, have that same problem with where we began our conversation, which is trying to disentangle what is a uh, general price increase and what is a relative price increase. And either way, it sounded like, fortunately, the government response was not a very effective one. It was not to focus on general price increases, but to focus on uh, wage and price controls, right? I think, yes. And we are, I think we are unable, uh, the human mind is unable to comprehend 
the complexities of world markets, just the complexities of a local market, the interactions of buyers and sellers, the effect of other features of our life that cause prices to change. We can't comprehend the complexities, but on the surface, it looks so simple. So there's a tendency to say, well, well, all we've got to do is tell the oil companies, don't raise your price above this number without our permission. And then somebody says, well, would you allow any kind of justification? Well, of course, uh, but give them a chance to justify. Back in the days of wage price control, we had a Council on Wage and Price Stability in Washington, and it was almost a thoroughgoing control of all prices. I remember the Girl Scouts of America really got in trouble. It was the season of the year when they were going to start their cookie drive. Ah, uh-huh, that's this season right now. That's right. <laughs> this is that timely. Is right. Okay. <laughs> that is right now. And I love those peanut butter goodies that they make. But there had been some kind of change in weather that affected the production of something that went into their cookies. And they found themselves in a financial bind. They were going to have to raise the price of Girl Scout cookies in violation of federal guidelines. For them to do that, they had to come and petition the Council on Wage and Price Stability. Now, the council included the Secretary of Treasury, the Chairman of the Council on Wage and Price Stability, Council of Economic Advisors. In other words, the biggest stuff shirts in Washington had to come together in a room and listen to a petition from the Girl Scouts. <laughs> now, now, no one who says we ought to have price controls probably thought, well, what about Girl Scouts? What they were thinking about was probably Exxon and Shell Oil Company or something like that. But this world is far more complex than we realize and what appears to be so simple on its face. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this reminds me of a famous uh, quote by uh, Alfred Kahn, who was the head of the Civil uh, Aeronautics Board um, in the late 70s, ended up uh, actually sort of dismantling the board. But he was talking about this dynamic process of, you know, somebody comes to the government and, you know, asks for a price floor. So, you know, we, the Civil Aeronautics Board, we grant them a price floor. But a price floor then induces more entry because people, firms are like, oh, this is great. I can get a higher profit. So that induces entry. So then they they have to come before the board and they say, oh, can you limit entry? Uh, So we do that. And then they start, firms can profit by adding extra routes. So then we have to limit, they, they come and they say, can you limit routes? And then they start competing along uh, other dimensions like, you know, quality and uh, the size of sandwiches in first class and whether you charge for a movie uh, and and that sort of thing. And uh, he said at the end of the day, the comprehensive regulator has to try to control every aspect of the industry. And it becomes, you know, really an impossible task, which is, I think, one reason why Khan himself you know, was a leader in dismantling this apparatus of regulation because he just felt, you know, it was so obvious that it was self-defeating and it was never ending. It's just much simpler to leave these things to individual entrepreneurs to try to figure out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you're pointing out, uh, when you get that process started because of the features of regulation, the participants in the industry end up not making any unusual return. Their profits end up being normal. But the airlines are now serving uh, French French designed meals. Uh, 
three courses. And the next guy says, well, I'm going to add a bottle of wine. And after a while, it costs more to fly. Nobody's making unusual profits. All of the possibilities for doing so have been competed away. Then that means deregulation leads to bankruptcy. And as they say, it'll all come out in the wash, but it's hell going through the ringer. And so uh, an industry goes through the ringer and we get back to Fred McChesney and rent extraction. Yeah. (laughs) Saying don't, not now. Well, it it makes you, it makes you want to eat a a entire box of thin mints, or at least it does me. Uh, (laughs) Well, my guest today has been Bruce Yandel. Uh, As always, it's such a pleasure to chat with you, Bruce. Uh, Your latest economic situation report can be found on Mercatus.org. It explores all of these ideas and more, including a couple of book reviews that we didn't even have a chance to, to get to. Thank you, Bruce. I look forward to chatting with you again soon. My pleasure, Matt. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you would like to connect with a scholar featured on this episode, please email the Mercatus Outreach team at mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu for more information.